Hello everyone, welcome back to our discussion. Very glad that you have joined us as we continue our journey through Hebrews. My name's Cameron. And I'm Lachlan. And for this episode, it's going to be just the two of us. Luke and Ken are unavailable at this time. That's okay. We'll we'll look forward to them joining us again uh, next week for our next chapter of Hebrews. Look, we've had this trouble before where sometimes the chapter divide happens in a place that's not very natural. And I notice as we turn to Hebrews 8 that uh, it begins with um, with the claim that we have just such a high priest. Ah. And jumping in cold, we don't quite know what such a high priest is. So I propose that to get us back in the swing of things, um, I might start our reading in the last few verses of chapter 7. And yep. then if you can kick us on with chapter 8, we'll read through and just and just stop as ideas occur to us. So the the close of chapter 7. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And this is the start of chapter 8. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honour beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, then there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. Let's pause it there, Locke. I think there's a fair amount of ideas to unpack already. Uh, here's, um, here's one idea which we sort of hinted at last week in our discussion, but it came up more in the discussion we had at Launceston uh, Church. Uh, it's this, we were talking about the previous chapter with Melchizedek, where, and we reflected on this, much is made of the fact that Melchizedek had an unknown origin and his death was never recorded, and so therefore he has to represent an eternal priesthood. And I stirred them up a bit about asking, you know, is it, is it true that Melchizedek never died? And <laughs> and and uh, one of the people there said, um, you're, you're stretching a metaphor beyond its intended use. And metaphors don't stretch beyond their intended use. Yeah. Hmm. A donkey cut me off in traffic today. I don't literally mean it was a donkey. It was someone driving a car, and I don't mean he had grey hairy ears or you know or whatever. Um, we are quite happy with saying, oh, I don't know, the Melchizedek account has a spiritual truth, and we won't try and unpick the metaphor to silly levels. We'll 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 just take the <laughs> truth and then go. Um, as a denomination, when it comes to the sanctuary, though. Alone of all the metaphors that are used to Christ in the book of Hebrews, we really go to town on the details. Mm. So, you know, when, when the author of Hebrews says that Melchizedek was an eternal priest and Christ is a priest in that order, we 
we don't fuss about the details, but when we say um, uh, that the earthly sanctuary was a direct copy or a pattern of the heavenly one, suddenly we're really insistent that the details are important. And it seems to me that as a denomination, we um, divide ourselves too easily into people who are progressive and people who are conservative. And it's tempting for both sides to feel that they are completely different to the other side. Um, and that one side, whichever it is, is reading the Bible completely wrong. Hmm. But the important thing is that that everyone who reads Hebrews is making a decision, an interpretive decision, about what it thinks the essential spiritual truth is and what are the details that are superfluous. And the conservative and liberal people within um, Adventism, and I know there's been a lot of controversy around the sanctuary, um, are not doing a different sort of thing. Mm. They're both doing the same sort of thing. They're following a very similar process. They're just comfortable with the line drawn in different places about which are the details of this metaphor that convey the essential truth and which are the details that that are, you know. Mm. And the fact that it's really an issue of of that line being drawn in different places also highlights one of the other things that can easily be forgotten um, because sometimes these particular discussions flare up and of course the sanctuary one in in adventist history certainly has and probably more than once if we're honest um but when they flare up it's very very easy for it to become binary one or the other you know are you on this side or on that side and and once it becomes like that in the worst instances, it becomes a kind of a fight, a battle, and you want to exclude those apostate heretics who are wrong. Um, and yeah. imagine you do achieve that. Imagine you do manage to to get rid of out of your life all of the people that were on the other side of that of, of that very vivid divide. What you'll find is that the people who are left um, uh, surrounding you. Um, may not all have drawn their lines in exactly the same place as you did. It's just that their line happened to fall on average on your side of that fictional battle line. Um, and yeah. the, the the old issue that the then you end up with a new battle. You can you can yeah, there'll be a new battle over over some new thing because it turns out that that old one wasn't quite um, good enough to exclude everyone who disagreed with me. And the natural end result is that I'm going to be on my own because there may not be anyone else in the world who has exactly the same set of slightly nuanced arbitrary lines where I'm happy to accept a metaphorical lack of death for Melchizedek, but I'm not happy to accept a metaphorical, um, you know, whatever it might be, three verses further on. Um, if, if we could all just accept that it's a bit arbitrary and sort of say, well, I'm going to ex ex extend to you the generous... Um, the generosity just sort of accept, well, I think you've drawn the line. To me, what you're, the line you're drawing sounds really crazy, but, but let's face it, mine might be slightly crazy too. Let's just, we'll, we'll keep this conversation going, but for now, let's put it on the shelf and be friends. I think that attitude might actually be more productive. <laughs> well, it might, especially when you look at what we agree. So, for instance, I think that people within Adventism with a very uh, literal view of a heavenly sanctuary... Um, very uh, very much tied up with the Great Disappointment in 1844, etc., 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 and people who might say they have they adopt a slightly less literalistic uh, viewpoint on sanctuary and slightly different views on events in our church history, I think they would all agree that the author of Hebrews is saying Christ is supreme. Yeah, yeah. He he is excellent. He is wonderful. 
he is sufficient. Yeah. There's a problem we have, and Christ is the solution. And it seems to me, in light of such agreement on what I would regard a fairly fundamental point, uh, the other details to me seem a little less significant. Um, Adrian Plaslock, uh, in one of in the Sacred Diary, at one point, his son Gerald goes to a church, and it's I forget what it is, but it's the Holy Apostolic, uh, True, uh, Fifth Day. Uh, it has about eleven adjectives in front of it, and um, Gerald says that they're a split off group that had a schism that divided into two <laughs> congregations, and one of the and it describes the history of the church. He said um, the current worshippers of has schismed themselves completely back to the their original doctrinal position, but none of them realise it. <laughs> that is that is always a risk, isn't it? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I think it's very interesting, and and here, um, I I'm not an expert on some of these things, but I I understand that while there was considerable battle, and there has been within the Adventist Church, uh, considerable focus given to the um the literalness of this physical heavenly tabernacle so if we're going to talk about this cam as being in the language of metaphor um there the question is not so much metaphor is always non-real it's just which element of it is the reality that the metaphor is conveying um yeah. when yeah. when that donkey cut you off in traffic was it the was it the attitude or the behavior or the fact of four limbs or the the hoofs or the hairiness of the you know obvi- there's some yeah. element there that is real that's why yeah. the metaphor works um it, yeah and, because the driver was stubborn and irritating and yeah yeah donkeys have um, that reputation and those, so. those 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 uh, are real attributes of of at least the idealized donkey in most people's yeah. minds. Um, so what has happened, I understand, within our, even our own Adventist church history is that the emphasis has shifted from the the physicalness or the literalness of the building to the to the meaning of the phases of, of ministry represented by the the architecture of the yeah. tabernacle with a with a holy place and a most holy place, um, and it's it's very easy to see that other shifts may take place or may have happened and various people fall into various places um but the the bit, the wording that jumped out at me in the new living translation that i read from chapter 8 verse 1 here in in the book of hebrews here is the main point <laughs> yeah. um you know it seems almost as if you know, we've been going through Hebrews now, chapter after chapter after chapter. We're sort of um, a little more than halfway through now, and uh, here we've got to the to this place where a main point is being identified, and we've we've built up to it. So there is some validity in placing a certain level of emphasis and a certain amount of con- concentrated uh, attention to yeah to this particular part of Hebrews. It's clearly a theme or an idea or a construct that that also was important in the mind of the author yeah yeah and of the author here is very skilled uh, if we we're going to make a comparison between the metaphors used here and melchizedek melchizedek's an obscure figure like he turns up once in a story for a few verses and it's referred to once in a psalm and that's it <laughs> um he's really on the periphery of of the anecdote as it's happened mm. um but the point that he's making in that chapter 
is about is about the fact that God, you know, you're in the previous chapter it's saying that you're, the priesthood that you guys have is not the only way God works in this world. Like, hmm. there there are grander and bigger. There are mysteries that you, that have not been revealed to you. So how how would you convince someone that there are mysteries that haven't been revealed to you? You would use a mysterious figure that turns up, you know, in odd sorts of yeah. places, and you'd say, oh, "But that's going to be the perfect job. I'll, I'll use that one." Uh, when when you're trying to argue that Christ has the central role, mm. Christ is the thing around which our faith must be built for it to be legitimate. What are you going to use? Well, you're going to use. The tabernacle, aren't you? Which yeah. was the the very centre of the old Jewish religious tradition. People had to come to Jerusalem and we looked in the book of Deuteronomy that there's an insistence that you only worship God in one place and it's just mm. going to be a special place and, and all the rest of it. So um, it's definitely horses for courses. The, yeah. the author is, 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 is doing uh, very well. It seems to me that um, one of the points that's being made here is that um, this concept of immediacy... So in the past, we've talked about Moses a bit and we've talked about uh, Melchizedek and we've talked about these ways that God revealed. Yeah, but hang on. What's happening now is the main point is this, that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a level of immediacy here. This is not God working through a covenant or working through a... Mm. Um, uh, Moses or working through Melchizedek or working through the priests, this is well, God's just there and yeah. Christ is they're, they're adjacent and he's our representative and it's you know, which which is much more reminiscent, isn't it, of, of the sort of symbolism of the most holy place yes, um, than the holy place. Yeah, the emphasis here certainly seems to be on that um, that access because Jesus is now so down in... Um, in verse 6, but now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that's far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. So the idea of mediating a better covenant is connected to what you were saying there, this idea of access. Um, yeah. if, if you like, and here's something, this is a good place to, to make mention of um, a, an interesting little study that my wife did when she was studying theology. Um uh, look, my wife's interest is very focused on on history, and and she decided to do a little bit of an essay on or a, a research project on the the comparing the tabernacle as described and as instructed in the Old Testament to some of the contemporary temples and places of worship. So particularly relevant are the ancient Egyptian ones because that's the culture out of which the Israelites have have exodused, <laughs> exited mm. um, when they're in the wilderness getting the instructions for the tabernacle. And here's one of the curly questions that you really honestly must ponder. If the tabernacle, if the tabernacle was a copy of a heavenly sanctuary. You mean in its architecture? Yeah, in all its, in all its details, and, and it may be, but I'm just presenting a, a hypothetical. If it is an exact copy of some architecture in heaven, how, what's the probability that that would even be recognisable as a meaningful place of God and of worship to, um, 
to people. Now, maybe yes, because, okay, they are people who have a cultural heritage of being connected to God. So right back to Abraham, you've got this uh, apparently quite special relationship there. And so um, and so on back to back to the earlier parts of Genesis. And it could be argued, well, mm. there was a, a cultural awareness. God had already taught people what places of worship looked like. So that's possible. But another part that another thing that I think has to be acknowledged is the incarnational aspect of God's communication with humans. When when he comes in the person of Jesus, it is as a human. And that's mm. a massively important point. It makes it's it Hebrews the book of Hebrews earlier has made this point. He was tempted in ways like us. He has experienced the the pain, the things that come with being mm. a human in this world. And there's there's something powerful about that incarnational aspect. And the Bible itself, the written document, it's most of us don't really imagine a word-for-word dictation-type process of inspiration. I think a lot of Christians can see in the Bible texts massive evidence of the Holy Spirit and God's inspirational role, but also evidence of the humanness of some of the authors and well, and we something that Ellen White talked about didn't she she yeah we we amuse ourselves at times with you know God, poor old god changing his mind and repenting of his desire to wipe out the israelites we we are amused by it because we can see from our understanding of the world we can see it's not quite plausible that reality is exactly as as seems to be described in that in those few verses in the old testament Rather, rather, what we're getting there is a bit of a window of the human author. And if all of that is true, shouldn't we extend the same kind of allowance for the tabernacle? There, the historical fact is reasonably clear. There are strong architectural similarities between the design of the Israelite tabernacle given to Moses in the wilderness and the design of Egyptian temples around which Moses grew up as a child. Yeah, And you can make of that what you will, but I argue if we believe in an incarnational God who, who communicates yeah. in this way, I think we shouldn't be surprised if he instructs them to build a place which has elements that make it culturally identifiable as a place where a God would dwell, and other elements where he, his instructions are very specific, and this is what um, Clancy's essay identified, some elements where there are specific differences. And those specific differences would seem to me to be perhaps some of the most important things to look at. They are where God is saying, okay, I want you to know I'm a God, but I want you to be very clear that I'm not the same sort of God as some of those other ones that you've been hearing about in Egypt and in um, you know, Canaan and, and whatever the others um, in the surrounding nations might be. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point, Locke. And uh, um, people get upset about the idea of sort of God telling lies. Well, if it why would uh, why would God do an imperfect or a compromised delivery of his idea to humans? Why, why would inspiration be compromised? If it's anything less than the direct words of God, then it is in some sense insufficient. As soon as you say that God had to speak to Moses in either Egyptian or Hebrew or in one, one of the ancient languages, that is a limitation on God. Yeah, good um, point. In, in some ways. Um when God speaks to people in visions and dreams, mm. um, presumably he spoke to them in their language. And the language is 
by English standards, quite limiting in terms of its ability to to delineate between different nuances of meaning, much reduced vocabulary. Yeah. Um, and uh, we do this anyway. So uh, I had a fascinating Bible study when I was at college with, I think his name was Cliff Mabley, uh, who's done a lot of uh, evangelistic work in Southeast Asia. He said, if you're in Thailand and you want to create a church uh, in the parts of Thailand where he was, I think it was Thailand. It was somewhere in Southeast Asia. Uh, he said, get rid of the seats. <laughs> None of the local people have pews um, when they go to their places of worship. Uh, in fact, where he was, the Buddhists, I don't know if this is true of Buddhism in general, but in his community, the Buddhists marked days of special holy days and, um, uh, they were made different by the fact of having no music. <laughs> so so really if you play hymns, well, as soon as you start playing a hymn, no one will even know it's a place of worship. Yep. Um, so get rid of it. Uh, well, what do, what do these people do? To re- they, they like chanting. They chant the, the tenets of Buddhism. All right, well, then let's chant. We'll yeah. go through Psalms 119. Um, and in unison, it will be chanted. And they loved it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, his the architecture of the churches where he worked were identical to a Buddhist temple, because hmm. you want someone walking down the street to say, "Oh, that's a place of worship." But the Buddha was missing, so they'd walk hmm. in, and where the statue of the Buddha would be was an empty podium. And if anyone asked, they were told that in this in this temple we worship the source of Buddha's inspiration. Yeah, yeah, right. So in that sense, that's that's a really really good. Um, example of or explanation of what I was trying to get at in a more abstract way. I like that. It's It's got to be recognisable if, uh, unless it, that is precisely the, the cultural element that you're trying to teach on, modify. Um, so all I'm saying by all of this is that I personally find it to be slightly useless to get in, tied up in knots about exactly how we we want to take this part of Hebrews, which draws a connection between the heavenly tabernacle and the one on earth. Um, I just think we get way tied up in knots. We've got to acknowledge that that an incarnational God wanted to communicate with people. There would be elements of a, a tabernacle that he would instruct Moses to build. I, I just, in general... I would expect there to be elements that are more or less f- culturally familiar because you don't need it to be entirely different. You want to work with the familiarity where that is where that is going to make sense. And then there will be elements of it which are, if you like to quote from Hebrews, copies of a heavenly reality. Um, yeah. And that would be what I would expect um, and if you want to know which elements of it are the are the heavenly reality that matters, I actually think the book of Hebrews is helping us understand that. Um, the it it you can look to Christ because Christ is the better temple, the better sacrifice, the better covenant. In every way that the temple mattered, that the tabernacle mattered, Christ has superseded it, yeah. has become it, but better. So if you want yeah. to know what elements... So I think this works by looking backwards. I think you can then, as a Christian, in the benefit of hindsight of having experienced um, the incarnation through Jesus, then yeah. I think you might have a chance to go back. 
Um, what I think gets us really tied up in knots is where we try and, and go the other way round and sort of go from first principles, which I know as, as scientists and mathematicians, we're somewhat often yeah. trained to do. But in this instance, you're not going to be able to immediately see um, which elements are the are there for cultural familiarity to make it recognizably a place of, of a God's dwelling and which elements are the specifically communicating the, the heavenly realities. Yeah. Um, in the interest of time, Locke, let's read through the rest of the chapter. The, the bulk of the rest of the chapter is a quote uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, what's it quoting from? It's, uh, I'm looking for the link. My, the Bible I have doesn't have the link. Um, oh, I Jeremiah have... 31. Jeremiah 31, I think. Yeah, I have, yeah, um, yeah. I have a footnote so, there. So uh, the author of Hebrews is defending the notion here from verse 8 onwards that the um, Old Covenant needed replacing. Yeah, you know, wow, if, if what a broke, cool idea to go back to the Old Testament to defend that notion. Yeah, yeah. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And uh, his point here is that it something yeah. was, was broken that needed fixing. And was anticipated uh, so, as being such before the lived experience of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand uh, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbour, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. <laughs> In speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. <laughs> this is a very cool chapter of the book of Hebrews. I can, I, the, the, the building of the argument is certainly past either either here or very recently in, into the substance of what the what he was yeah. articulating yeah. um it's the, really interesting if you were if you were what the author's saying here is if you want to drop cross and just go back to what you used to have because it was comfortable perhaps safer in the historical mm. context here christians were beginning to face persecution mm, mm. got bad news for you all of that is about to vanish away yeah um, yeah there is there is nothing to return to. Yeah. Um, very interesting. Uh, look, I think this. Um, I think this passage quoted from Jeremiah is is very cool. Um, yeah. We we have looked at this actually in an earlier episode on this podcast in a previous season. Um, I remember reading it now because, and we talked a bit about the the substance there. It's very powerful. You've got a new covenant that's contrasted with the one that was given with their ancestors when they were led out of Egypt. So we're set into the into the Mount Sinai sort of context. Yeah. And against that backdrop, we've now got a covenant in which the law is put in their minds and written in their hearts, rather than being written yeah. on stone and placed in a box in the in the tabernacle. So that's the first contrast. That's that's, that's a vivid contrast. It's quite different. Um yeah. They will not need to teach their neighbors or teach their relatives. Well, in the context of the Exodus, there's quite a few places where it's exhorted to 
tell the stories to the children, maintain the mm. stories through the generations. So mm. there's a contrast here. They won't need to teach because is, they will know already. But it's a bit reflexive, Locke. It's a bit um, a commentary on itself. The author here is attempting to teach people. <laughs> yes you're right so, um, <laughs> you're right um and and the uh, i remember us discussing never again remember their sins um yeah it seems this is, one of the one of the features about this covenant lock is it's not about the land it's not about the nation yes. of israel it's yeah. about this is a covenant that establishes the standing of that people have with god mm. what the relationship will be and how it will function and mm. Uh, God is saying that he will be gracious, he'll make himself imminent to them. Um, and and it's, this is not a covenant, as described here, that's about the Jewish people necessarily at all. It's about yeah. God's desire for all people. Um, so, uh, it and it is really a great... If you were going to say, well, as a summary, what is the, what is the new covenant? Um, I'll be merciful towards their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. Mm. I know mm. I know. Um, we also discussed this in a previous uh, episode at some point with the flood where God says that he's resolved to destroy everything on earth. And then yep. later on he resolves not to destroy. And you think, well, God's made change his mind. In fact, um, God changes his mind so much in Genesis. He's going to destroy every living thing. And then in the next breath he says, oh, Noah, can you build a boat? Yeah. But he's just yeah. resolved to destroy every and, living thing. Um, and Noah, the, Noah has found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but then he uses the boat, God instructs him to use the boat to save all sorts of other animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Noah alone. His family are allowed on, even though it's only Noah that's pleased God. So um, God's always making an ounce, but it's always in the direction of grace. Mm, mm. God's always changing his mind in favor of people. And, um, you know, at the start, of that story, we discover that God's heart is grieved by mm. human sin. It, it hurts yeah. him. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he, human suffering inflicted by humans on humans causes God pain. And at the end of the story, God says, do you know what? I'm not going to wipe out. I'm not going to send a flood again. I will just, this causes me pain, but I will, I will have to live with that. Yeah. 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 I will, that, that experience is one that I will, I will accept. Mm. Um, which is, you know, a tiny um, sort of preview of this sentiment. Um, I'm going to be merciful towards their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. In the context of the book of Hebrews, where we're talking about the covenant and about to talk about sacrifices, mm. and have already talked about sacrifices a little bit, at huge per- personal cost for God. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a really, a really powerful point. And I think this... Um, it just sort of solidifies what I was saying before. The, the, if we're wondering about which, which elements of the tabernacle and the sanctuary are the elements that, are the, that contain the heavenly truth that we were meant to pick up, yeah, um, I think it's this. I think it's, it's, it's the idea of access. Why does God instruct in the Old Testament, why does God instruct them to build a tabernacle in the first place? It's so that God can dwell among his people. Right, it's, it's almost accommodating that, like, a weirdly almost superstitious. Like God doesn't need a tent, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But but he he wants them to build him a tent, so that in their minds they feel like he is dwelling among them, right? He's accommodating them. 
This is like when Naaman asks for two donkey loads of dirt because he wants to worship the God of Israel. Yeah. He doesn't want to worship his pagan God. He wants to worship the God of Israel. But in his mind, that means he needs, because God, yes. in his mind, were provincial and local. He needed yeah, yeah. some of Israel to take home with him. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> so that he could, and God says, "Yeah, that's a good idea. Let him do yeah. that." That's, that's yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the the fundamental idea of God want wanting to dwell with His people, and of course, we pick this up uh, at the end of the New Testament in the Book of Revelation, where there's there's the idea of the New Jerusalem and of God dwelling with the saints, um, and and that that sort of proximity and relationship and closeness is almost celebrated in in fulfillment i f- i feel that same that same sense here the um the you know uh, new covenant on that day i'll put my laws in their minds i will be their god they will be my people um yeah. that on the one hand that is a, a, a an establishment of the terms of the relationship but on the other hand it's emphasizing the the proximity, like I will be their ruler, they'll be my people, they'll be my citizens. Think about this from a from a city-state culture, where mm. where the idea of nations doesn't make a whole lot of sense to to, to the early to the early mm. um, recipients of the Book of mm. Hebrews. You, you you have empires like the Roman Empire, but mm. power structures are built around leaders of cities and and citizens of cities. Um, and that's the way it was in in Europe up until only a few centuries ago, so it's not even that foreign to us when we stop to think about it. I will be their God; they'll be my people. Is a statement of proximity. Locke, do you remember um, growing up? Our dad once asked us to build a Lego model of the big boy, a steam train, which yeah. he used in a sermon. And I can't remember the details of the sermon, but I'm going to guess in hindsight. I would I probably was about six at the time. Yeah. And I remember he preached a sermon at College Church and he had a Lego steam drain that we'd made, um, which in true Lego fashion was highly multicolored and yeah. a little stylized. <laughs> but if my memory serves me correct, it the two bogies containing the driving wheels swiveled and we yep. we I had think, a cow yeah, catcher on the front and a cab and a I tender. And, I haven't thought about this for ages, but it's coming back to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dad also had his uh, HO scale electric model of a big boy which mm. uh, was quite a valuable model train which actually ran on on tracks um uh, uh m- much more scale detail fairly carefully molded yeah coincidentally on roughly about the same size as our lego one from memory so that he was able to hold them up and um he talked about exactly what it means to create a copy of something <laughs> and um you know, our Lego big boy was a copy of the heavenly blueprint, in this case, not heavenly, but, you know, mm. located at Cheyenne, Wyoming, or wherever they, they manufactured the, the big boys. Um, according to the tools at our disposal and the scope of our own abilities and yeah. um, and our time and resources available to us and our experience, we created an authentic copy. And mm. the thing... The thing had some essence of a steam train when you looked at it. Yeah. Um, and when you looked at um, it, though, in comparison to the steam train, you, the the electric one that ran on the tracks, Dad's actual HO scale train, it was a much, much better model. 
obviously much better. Uh, mm. Made with people with a different set of experience, a different access to the actual blueprints. Um, very different design brief too, actually. Um, yeah. uh, and so you look at that and you say, well, that's a better model of the of the real thing. Yeah. Um, then you ask the question, how much of the real thing could I learn by looking at these models? Yeah. N- none of them make loud noise neither of them make loud noises or give off the physical feeling of heat just to pick two experiences that you do really feel when you're near an actual steam one of them didn't move at all and one of them only moved with the supply of electricity to the wheels and and you would have to say that the ability of a steam train to move is a highly essential part of being (laughs) a steam train um it and perhaps one of the how... most essential elements of being a steam train is the ability to produce steam. <laughs> Huge clouds of steam. Yeah, none of none of these trains produce steam. Um, so, um, and and uh, it wouldn't matter how well you made it look like a train. It's not a train. Mm. Um, it's not a steam train unless it's got fire and heat and mm. all the rest of it. Uh, so it's an example of something which is a copy. And anyone who's seen the steam train can look back and say, yeah, that Lego model, that's that's probably a big boy, is it? You know, it's got two bogies and it's got four wheels mm. on each bogey and it's very long. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's, that's probably a big boy. And anyone who's seen a steam train can look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's that's what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if, even more recognisable is the electric train that runs along the track and pulls some miniature carriages, etc., etc. Et but someone who had not seen the heavenly thing, the heavenly, in this case, the the authentic thing. Um, yeah. y- you would hesitate before you recommended our Lego steam train to them as a means for illuminating what it means to be a steam train. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it's an accurate expression of the essence of steam train within the scope of the ability of the builders and the tools available to them and all the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not only a sort of a valid expression, but, within those constraints, a very successful expression. Yes. Um, yeah. I think we did remarkably well for, for the, the meeting that was provided to us. Um, so it's valid and successful at that level, but you yeah. wouldn't look at the Lego model and use it to settle disputes about the fine details of what the mm. real big boy is like. Yeah. All right. I think that's a very good example of what's going on here. Mm. Um, and, and if I could be flippant for just a moment, what if, what if the Israelites in the wilderness were in fact limited by the materials available? What if, for example, to be a more accurate architectural representation of a heavenly sanctuary, you would need materials with the, the strength, tensile strength to weight ratio of carbon fiber? And it just wasn't available to them because they were a few millennia too early. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm. It's not even a substantial comment, but it does highlight. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. similarity of the challenge. So I guess the challenge then is twofold. One is as we read, as we start to get to these um, passages from Hebrews about which there's been dispute. Mm. Temptation is to try and solve that question, mm. and I think there is value in saying. Hang on, that that's an interesting question. Some of these very active disputes on exactly which parts are metaphorical and which aren't, and which are the essential elements and which are the peripheral elements. Um, but to sit back and write down a list of the things that Adventists and mm. indeed our larger Christian tradition mm. that we belong to 
is fairly much uniformly agreement on. And uh, do we think that they are perhaps significant and important and worth talking about? And I think that they certainly are. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right, Locke, when the author of Hebrews says, no, we're getting to the centre of the thing. We we really are. Um, mm. You know, if if you're tempted to leave this new faith in Christ, what you are leaving is your chance for proximity with God. Yeah. To to be with him. That's 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 the essential thing. The essential yeah. thing is that this you haven't been able to have access and communion with God. There's um but God's worked to make this possible. This is this is the essence. And mm. um I think the author of Hebrews is is fully justified in choosing avoid everything at their disposal. The the tabernacle to illustrate this. Mm. I agree. Right. Well, we're going to leave it there. It was going to be a shorter episode, lock, but I think uh-huh. the clock and it's, it's not. I'm sure that there's lots more that could be said, and Ken and Luke may chip in next week and, and uh, add interesting perspectives. Uh, our listeners are welcome to email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, uh, you're welcome to email us on with, with and express any sentiment that you'd like. Uh, if you do choose to email us and say that we were insufficiently liberal or insufficiently um, uh, conservative in our discussion of Hebrews 8, uh, I'll let you know in advance that that's not solving our problem. Um, <laughs> uh, we we um, think that a celebration of things, as I've just said, that everyone can agree on is, is more than enough to occupy a podcast episode. Mm. Uh, and, um, yeah, uh, please feel free to share this podcast with anyone who you feel might uh, benefit from it. And uh, we look forward to you joining us again next week.